This is the Art of Quality podcast. The Art of Quality is a series of conversations with investors and operators of high-quality backgrounds. From decades of exploring quality in business and life, we have found that the underlying patterns are often only accessible via stories and dialogue, and not with more research notes or Excel models. We are here to bring patterns of quality to you. To find more episodes of The Art of Quality, go to theartofquality.co. In this podcast, we are joined by Luca Delana. Luca is a management advisor and the author of nine books on human behavior and management. More than 25,000 people around the world read Luca regularly. Today, he will share stories on his new research focus, Quality in Management. With us today is Luca Delana, and we're excited to um, have a conversation on quality in business. Uh, so just before we get rolling here, Luca, could you give us just a quick uh, introduction to yourself and uh, your background and what you're currently interested in? And then we'll then we'll move on to our first question. Yeah, thank you for having me here. So I have more than 10 years of experience uh, in uh, management consulting. And uh, basically what I'm doing is I'm advising managers and executives and organizations on uh, people management and operations management. And uh, yeah, I'm an automotive engineer. I've had a few years of experience working in a global consulting company, DuPont, in Frankfurt, Germany. And then for the last seven years, I've been working by myself and also on the side, publishing a few books on management and human behavior. Fantastic. I am. Um... I met Luca through uh, what for me was was probably book of the year last year, which was um, his book uh, titled er- titled Ergodicity, uh, which which uh, in my view is is probably the most important concept that almost no one has heard about. Um, so I'd encourage listeners to check that out if you haven't. Um, it's a um, I would say a dense, dense, fairly technical topic that Luke has done a, a very admirable job of making simple and understandable and and applicable. Um, I, I sort of finished reading it, thinking, "Man, we need to construct societies and businesses and families and so on in meaningfully different ways than we do because of of the concepts of ergodicity." So um, I'll leave that there for now, but um, I'd encourage listeners to check it out um, to get us started on our our um, discussion today. So, Luca, just through getting to uh, know you, we've learned that uh, the concept of, of quality, particularly quality in business, has become your uh, next or most recent sorry, area of research and focus, and I suspect probably publication in, in the future. Um, so tell us, how, how did you get, why is that your next target? I mean, you've written somewhat broadly on different topics. Why did quality become the next the next place to spend time? Yeah, actually, quality was my first target uh that's what I published the thesis on uh, uh very very early on in my career and the reason why it was my uh my first interest is because my father used to work in the field uh, he was the president of the European Organization for Quality sadly he died when he was very young when I was very young so I never managed to talk with him about the topic but he left behind a huge library and that really uh, took my interest. And something that I've noticed very early on is that a lot of the discussion about quality, it's about product and manufacturing and sometimes logistics. And that makes a lot of sense, but I always wondered, like, there is a lot that is uh, left on the side, for example, management quality. And uh, since in the past 10 years, I've been working on operations and in particular on the people side of operations people uh, and people management, then I always um, went back to the topic of quality in management. So the concept of managerial quality. And uh, for example, for me, it's a big missed opportunity that all of the mindset that we apply rightfully to product quality we don't also apply it to managerial quality. And 
and for me, there is uh, a big opportunity there. And that's something that I've spent more time in the last uh, year or so. Do you think that um, one of the things that we've we've discussed a lot uh, offline has been the notion of um, quality being hard to measure? And what role does measurement play in, in um, understanding and pursuing quality? And, and it's sort of, I think, easy to grok if you're building a product. There are ways to measure defects and um, or in terms of supply chains, you know, on time in full. You know, there, there are a lot of quantitative ways we can understand those systems and, and quality in those systems. Uh, people is a much more difficult beast. Uh, we, we tend to change and evolve and move and group and regroup and so on. So um, what, what role does measurement or difficulty in measurement play in understanding quality of, of management? Yeah, that's, that's the main uh, trap. It's looking for quality in what we can measure, mm -hmm. uh, which I mean, it's not the problem. Like, of course, there are a lot of things that you can learn by measuring things. But if you only look at what you can measure, you will miss so many things. Like one possible definition of quality is the absence of hidden defects. Like if you think about it, like in a lot of products, uh, I don't know, high quality bags or things like this, it's not just that they perform well on what is easy to measure, but they also have a lot of, uh, let's say, good bits about things that you cannot really, really measure. And it's something that when you see it, you feel it, but very hard to put a number on. And the same applies for quality in general, and in particular for people. Because for products, usually measuring, you can get most of the properties. And when you see a property, it's easy to measure it. There is, for example, no good hard slow for products. If you start measuring something in a product, the product will not change its behavior to optimize for your measurements, for example. So it, it's much easier. When you're, doing with, when you're dealing with people, there is so much that you can miss if you only measure. And a lot of it, it's about just using direct observation. So you don't try to, to necessarily put numbers and aggregate them uh, in a report, but sometimes you get much better data and information just if you go in the field and you observe what's going on. What are the habits of the people? What are their behaviors? What they look for? What's their reaction to events on the workplace? These are the things that, that really matter and you cannot look at them through numbers. And I always make the example of sports coaches. Imagine if a sport coach, a football coach, for example, were to only manage their players through the eyes of statistics. Probably he would do a terrible job. Maybe using statistics would help to find out which players are undervalued by the market, and maybe it could lead to some good transactions. But once the player is inside the team, numbers, they're really not very useful. When you train your players, when you give feedback to your players, you want to give it on things that, that you examine, that you, that you observe, not necessarily on things that you can see through the numbers. And that's why sport coaches, they look at their players training and playing, and that's what managers should do much more. Yeah, that's fascinating. I was, I was recently listening to an interview with Daryl Morey, who was uh, part of the the movement that brought an enormous amount of analytics into sports in general, but particularly basketball. Uh, and he was, what stuck out to me was he was talking about how hard it is to measure the second and third order effects of the impact of a player on a team. And so the example he gave was, you know, it's easy to measure um, points scored and free throw percentages and that kind of thing. Uh, but there are enormous benefits to a player who can pass the ball well to certain kinds of other players. And if you have a large dominant center, you want somebody that can put the ball right at the right spot, especially if that center also doesn't have great hands. So somebody like Yao Ming, who's a wonderful player, but not necessarily able to go grab the ball as efficiently as other players. And, and he said, you know, that's a second order effect. And even that's hard to measure. And then you think how many third and fourth order effects there will be. And at some point, You've got to get out of the field of measurement and get back to what you were saying to understand how that system as a whole 
plays, which I think kind of gets at um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was distinguishing between quality in static systems or perhaps static items versus dynamic systems. I love the the line you you had, um, you know, a, a physical product is not going to change its behavior to optimize for how you measure it. But we all know humans do this in organizations all the time. We game systems. We try to play things to our advantage. So um, do, do you sort of distinguish when you're dealing with dynamic systems? Are you looking at quality from a different lens because you know the system will be adaptive uh, instead of static? Exactly. That's, for example, one of the reasons why I look very much at management behaviors and at the reaction of people. I'll give you an example. Let's say that we notice that for quality, it's very important that when there is a problem, people raise their hand, they say we have a problem, and then someone works on solving that problem. So one way we could measure that, for example, would be to check how many times people raise their hand and say we have a problem. However, something which is, in my opinion, it's even more important is what happens when someone raises the hand. And in particular, does he learn the lesson that the next time he shouldn't raise the hand or does he learn the lesson that the next time he should raise the hand? And this is, for example, things such as when you raise the hand, does your manager blame you or does, you, does your manager give you extra work? So, for example, you notice a problem, you raise the hand. If that problem becomes your problem and you need to work overtime, the next time you will probably be less likely to raise the hand. So these are all things that I pay a lot of attention for. So the reaction of, uh, of people to events. When there is a problem, how does the system react? That's something extremely important. And the other thing I, I really look for is what does the managers do? How does he spend his schedule? Because a manager that only spends his schedule putting off fires or uh, optimizing for the next bit of marginal uh, um, gain that we can achieve and doesn't also spend a bit of time on preserving the good work, making sure that people don't over-optimize, making sure that people don't game statistics, making sure that people really understand the principles uh, over which the company operates, there I have a team whose performance will degrade over time. Yeah, you see this with, um, I think a recent interesting case of this was um, the the debacle with Southwest Airlines over the Christmas holidays, where, um, uh, you know, effectively this is the, the, I think the fourth largest airline in the US. I mean, there's really only five big ones. Uh, carry an enormous amount of traffic, and effectively their systems just broke. Uh, and when you looked inside the organization, what you found was a lot of people who realized those systems were old and were going to break under under certain conditions. Um, and one of the things that Southwest is known for, they're known for wonderful customer service. They're also known for being one of the few airlines that's actually profitable. And so, you know, you, you wonder, you know, what decisions that were made maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago or five years ago that involved perhaps not spending money upgrading systems that resulted in that debacle, which at the end of the day, I think will be enormously costly to the company. Um, that's, that's a great, it makes me think of the adage, uh, what's measured improves, uh, but also what's rewarded gets repeated. I love that notion of how is, how is the hand raise, um, um, what incentive is created when someone raises their hand? That, that's an interesting way to, to think about it. Um, it also makes me wonder, um, you know, we, we as humans have an enormous amount of biases. And so as you've researched this area, do you see a common set um, of biases that sort of keep popping up that, that perhaps lead to us misunderstanding quality and how we create quality? Yeah, one, one thing is uh, that people, for, for example, people only respond to incentives that they've experienced in the past. Mm. And this is interesting because if you put an, ex an incentive, for example, on raising problems, on and people didn't experience that when they raise the problem, good things happen to them, very often that incentive will not be followed. Mm. Um, it's something counterintuitive. And sometimes we don't grasp that because there are always people in the company which grab the incentive because they had experiences in the past. 
in which um, raising the hand or surfacing a problems paid off, or even just they had experiences in the past where there is an incentive, they took it and good things happened to them. So we think, oh, we put an incentive, 10% of our workforce follows it, the other 90% uh, is lazy, for example. What happens in reality is that most probably 10% of your people had the previous experience of having grabbed an incentive and that and are likely to do it again. And yet 90%, maybe they had exper experiences in which someone puts an incentive and then they, they work towards it and for any reason they fail. And then they're like, desensitized to incentives. It's sort of the, the incentive behind the incentive. That's a really great, I mean, I think the sort of the economics discipline broadly is the study of incentives. But uh, despite having spent a lot of time in that discipline myself, I, I don't think I, I think that I've encountered a, a general assumption that if you put the right incentives in place, people follow them. And, and uh, I've not encountered that idea that it will actually, if, if they haven't experienced those incentives working, they, they may not follow them. It's a really interesting, really interesting point. Um, yeah, and, it also, and, uh, oh, sorry. Just wanted to, ahead, add one, to add one thing. For example, one of the most common things that, that I teach people is, that I teach managers is, if you have someone who's unmotivated on your team, who looks unmotivated, probably he didn't manage to get an incentive recently, and I don't necessarily mean a financial incentive, just the fact that he doesn't believe that if he does good work, good things will happen to him. It didn't happen to him recently, and therefore he, he became demotivated. And the one number one thing you should do is to make it happen that he does something good and good things happen to him. And usually one way that you can do it is by creating a smaller next step Maybe that person is not motivated to work on a quarterly uh, sales target, for example. You just put a, sale, a small sales target for the next week, something that they yeah. feel it's achievable, so for example. Problem. You work with them, you give them the support they need so that they achieve it. They achieve it, you award it, bam, you get a motivated person. Of course, it doesn't yeah. work 100% of the time, but it works right. much enough to justify yeah. doing it at scale. Sure. That that makes me wonder that the whole idea of um, um, skin in the game kind of comes to mind, and and I mean I have a broad assumption that that skin in the game dramatically increases quality, um, but there's I guess there's two ways we could take that. One is you know what kind of skin in the game, and as you already said, it's not always just financial incentives. Um, but but also I imagine if we thought hard enough, we may be able to think of cases where somebody doesn't have a whole lot of skin in the game and yet they still produce enormous quality. So what what have you uncovered, you know, in, in that area? Uh yeah, since you talk about skin in the game, like this, like, I just want to make the parallel again. Like a lot of times people do have skin in the game if you think about it, but they don't feel that they have skin in the game. I make an example, uh parking. I live in Italy. And parking is a wild west, like everyone parks in double um, double parks and so on. And the reason you do it is because 97% of the time, nothing will happen to you. There, are, there is an incentive fine. You don't feel like the incentive is here. You don't feel like, you, like, like you're, like you're skinning the game. Uh, same thing happens with um, texting and driving, for example. You clearly have skin in the game. You're driving, you're in the highway. If you crash, you're going to die. Or, some, or maybe you get injured. Yet, so many people, they text. Why? It's because they don't feel like, like they have skin in the game. Maybe they thought they had skin in the game during their first year of driving license. Then they drive for 10 years, nothing happens to them. Maybe they start picking up the phone and nothing happens to them, and then they really feel like they don't have skin in the game. And we see it with financial crisis, like a lot of the bubble and crash mechanism is people forgetting that they have skin in the game. Mm, that's a really, yeah, it's, um, it makes me think of a prior conversation we've had where you mentioned the idea of, of um, quality in a society or in a business partly being um, a, a function of not dismantling forms of insurance that you really need, but you don't need that often. 
Um, and, and so, you know, just like, uh, not texting, even though most of the time when you do text, when you're driving, you'll be fine is a good example. Or I think we talked about the prevalence of, uh, defibrillators in buildings where, you know, most of the time people don't have a heart attack, but when they do, and they need a defibrillator, they die if there's not one there. Uh, and so how do you make sure the defibrillator stays in the building, even if you don't use it for 20 years? Um, so, so what else in that domain have you, have you come across? And I thought that was just such an excellent way of, you know, a reason, for example, that some quality businesses have stayed alive for, in some cases, generations is they, they're, you know, maybe they're not the absolute best on every metric, but they've been almost impossible to kill. And usually that's not accidental. So, so what else have you uncovered in that area? No, exactly, John. That's one thing like businesses that thrive over long term, usually they are characterized by not shifting their priorities. For example, you think that insurance is important. You keep reinforcing that priority even when you think that insurance has been taken care of. Because if you stop doing it five years down the road, you will forget about it. So this doesn't mean that they don't look for the new thing, but they never abandon the, the, the old thing. So to make, to make an example, a company which with poor quality will start thinking about quality. Then when they reach it, they would move on to the next thing. For example, I, I don't know. Uh, improving volume, uh, improving sales, what, what else? And they forget quality until it becomes a problem. Mm. But once it becomes a problem, very often you lost the, the culture and right. going, going back to it is very hard. Instead, great company, what they will do is that maybe they work really much on creating a culture of quality. Once they achieve it, 50% of the time they, sp they spend on culture will still be on the old thing. And then maybe you spend 50% on the new thing. But maybe what you do is that one week I, ch I check this and the next week I go back at checking the fundamentals. Next week I work on the new thing. Next week I go back on the fundamentals, something, something along those lines. It makes me think I, I um, was a consultant in a natural resources company uh, for a, a while in a previous life. And uh, so on day one, we walked in their headquarters and, you know, we were there to sit at a desk and crunch some data basically and talk to managers. Uh, but the first thing that happened was we were all given a safety briefing. Um, and then, uh, the other thing that stuck out to me was we, when we would go up and down stairwells, everybody held the handrail. And if you didn't, people would chastise you. They'd say like, you need to hold the handrail. And it was amazing because it, it uh, I, I went somewhat quickly mentally in this journey from this is silly to, wow, I wonder what their safety is like in, you know, at a wellhead or, or somewhere or a, a, a dig site or something where, where, you know, there are lives at stake. If, if you're forcing me to hold the handrail, I actually think I'm pretty safe if I'm at a wellhead because it should, they just, it was the culture to your point. And it was, they just kept repeating, you know, I don't 20% of their culture, something, a large amount, which is always about safety. Um, it's, it's an interesting way to, to put it. it. It also makes me, if we put those two ideas together, it makes me think about how quality in business is partly a function of making decisions that are not just optimal for this week or this month, but also next year, next decade, next century, um, which I think is a very hard thing to do. But, but one of the things you mentioned is you must devote time to maintaining culture and maintaining good practice as well as building new things and new practice. What else do you find in that area? How do, how do businesses that, you know, can stand the test of time, how do they um, think about a decision, not just, and make a good decision, not just for next week, but for a hundred years from now? Yeah. Usually what I see is that those businesses that thrive over the long term, they always put two conditions as both necessary and non-sufficient. One is this decision uh, um, contributes to our core business, brings profit, and so on. And number two, doesn't compromise on our values. Mm -hmm. And the idea is always like, if you make profit and you compromise on the values, it's bad. If you do values, but in a way that you're not bringing long-term value to the business, that's also that, that's also bad because we are moving towards virtue signaling uh, uh, territory. 
Mm-hmm. And people have are given objectives on both. This doesn't mean that, of course, there isn't any, like sometimes there are moments in which you take a decision which doesn't make sense from the profit point of view, but makes sense for the, for the core values. But what I mean is when the performance evaluation time comes, if people didn't deliver both on results and on core values, they get told that they did a bad job. Mm-hmm. And that seems counterintuitive, but if you try to do it, you will see that people actually, they manage to, do, they usually manage to do both. Mm. Very interesting. That's um, I, uh, a strong conviction I've had just having spent a lot of time in a lot of different businesses, both building them, advising them, running around a lot of corporate headquarters, and then also as an investor has been um, how how siloed businesses sort of make themselves. And all I mean by this is I, you know, as an investor, I, you know, may look at a business as earnings per share or dividend or, or whatever. Um, as a builder, you know, the, the thing I mostly focused on was, can I look my clients in the eye and what are they telling me? Are they delighted with the product? Are, are I'm actually serving their, their needs? Um, you know, as an advisor, you're generally sort of optimizing, optimizing some piece of the business. But my, my point is, um, it seems like the fact that you know a board of directors speaks a certain language and cares about certain things, which are not always the same things, and it's definitely not the same language as the operators, which are not always the same things and definitely not the same language as the say the human resource department. And so those silos that come from having different languages, different metrics, um, and so on, seems to me to degrade that link between, optimizing for core values and optimizing what's good for the business and holding those in balance. So do, do you think there's, um, do you think if those silos get broken down that we can improve on keeping those two things, core values and, and what's good for the business sort of front and center in terms of how people direct their time and activity? Yes. And I just want to be very specific on how the silo broken and not necessarily like breaking the, the, the silos, but allowing for direct lines of communication. So you, we all know the game of broken phones. When uh, you sit, as a kid, you sit in a circle and uh, you start saying a sentence in the ear of the person to the, your left, that person says the sentence as they hear it to the person on their left. And then at the end of the circle, what happens is that usually you have a completely different sentence than what you started with. And you learn that communication degrades the more passages there are. In business, counterintuitively, it's the other way around. Let let me explain. If you try to communicate directly, for example, the CEO tries to give a message to the whole company, what happens is that that message will be very low quality. Why? Because if the CEO tries to address everyone in the company, he will have to be abstract and generic. And what happens is that everyone in the company listens to the, especially the frontline workers, they listen to the CEO message and then they're like, yeah, but what does it mean for me? Instead, if the message trickles down uh, line by line, it can remain high quality. How? The CEO says something to to his directors. The directors don't repeat that message, but they take the meaning of this message and they explain it in words that make sense to their team. And then everyone else takes the message from above, translates it into words, examples, talks about actions that their people are doing and, uh, and trickles it down this way. And that's how you maintain high quality. Mm. So when you, if you want to trickle down some message from the top to the bottom, you need to have many passages. Mm-hmm. Instead, when you want to trickle information from the bottom to the top, you need to have both direct and the many passages. And let me, let me explain you why. So if you only rely on the way from the bottom up in this um, in this system where a manager collects information from his team and then 
passes it to the layer above and so on, you will get a lot of information that gets compressed and you will lose high fidelity. What solves this is, for example, if the CEO once per month goes on the factory floor, goes on the retail store, retail store and so on, and checks with his own eyes what's going on. Of course, it cannot be the only thing because you also need the aggregate reports. And um, so because you need these two different methods to trickle information upwards and downwards, that's very counterintuitive. Like usually we think that the same method should work both ways, but but it's that makes just... Me, it makes me think of the, the, the challenge, but also the reward that comes from translating strategy into culture, but also using culture as a means of your, as a, a type of your strategy or as a driver of your strategy. It's, it's really, it's a really nice mental model. I, 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 I kind of, I, I get it. Um, I hadn't thought about it that way, but um, it, the translation is what comes to mind, right? It, it's uh, if you you start, start at the top, you have to have intentional layers of translation all the way down. Uh, whereas uh, starting at the bottom, um, works the other way around. Um, very interesting. It, so it makes me think um, about, um, actually, let's use that as an example. So that is a, um, that's a construct that I think any business could use to more effectively communicate from the top down or also the bottom up. Um, I think it's probably fair to say there are many businesses who effectively take an approach that says we're going to go aggregate up a bunch of best practices like you just shared and a whole bunch of others. And we're going to build a high quality business because our high quality business, uh, our, our business is high quality because we use lots of best practices. And yet when you then go walk in the door of a lot of businesses and are a consumer from lots of businesses and perhaps build some businesses, it becomes very apparent very quickly that the um, dispersion of outcomes for businesses that all use best practice is incredibly wide. Some fail, some become Hermes and Rolex. And, and um, even when you look under the hood, sometimes you see some of the same people I'm thinking of, I'm forgetting the name, but the, um, the uh, Apple marketer that went to run JCPenney and basically ran the Apple playbook in JCPenney and it was a complete mess and it burned a lot of money and didn't work. And so, you know, the point is we live in a world where, you know, it's, it's not that mechanical, right? It's, it's much messier and the dispersion of outcomes is much wider. And I mean, there are great stories of chefs that they'll have a hit restaurant and then they'll go open another restaurant. It just doesn't work. And so, you know, and that's obviously hinting at this idea of ergodicity, which we've talked about often in the past, but it makes me wonder, you know, if, if the reality is that using best practice isn't enough or having one hit doesn't mean you're going to have another hit um, or building one great business doesn't mean you're necessarily going to build another great business. Um, you know, it makes me wonder what, what could we do in terms of business practice and business building um, differently than we do today, knowing that we live in a world of incredible dispersion of outcomes, you know, are there core, for, for example, one that I, I think is just ought to permeate everything is, is, that extreme care for your customer, because without them, you really don't have a business. But I think there's probably a lot more in there that's maybe less obvious, where if you really think, just because I was successful once, it doesn't necessarily mean I can do the same thing again and have the same success. How would we construct a business differently, given that we live in a world like that? Yeah, so you mentioned best practices. One big problem is that a lot of people, they think about best practices as what are the right things to do, but they don't know how to do them right. Mm. Uh, I make some examples with people, man with people management. Like you could, you could think like um, performance reviews are a best practice. How do you actually do that? Lot of com lot of people they have no idea. I see that a lot of times when I uh, like some some of the work I do. Sometimes they hire me to audit. Uh, management capabilities within uh, within an organization. And what I do is that I schedule a series of interviews with some um, managers across the organization. And one of the questions I always ask is, what are the right things to do 
for your team members? Like, what are the best practices? What are the key behavior? And maybe, and usually most managers, they can answer this question very well. They come up with three, five, 10 best practices. Then I ask them, how do you apply these best practices, this best practice right? Can you teach me that best practice so that I know how to apply it right? And that's the big difference that separates great managers from uh, mediocre managers. Mediocre managers only know what the right things to do are. Great managers, they also know how to do them right. And this is like why a lot of times you get people, you get companies which are applying the right, the best practices, but they are not applying them right. And then, of course, uh, the outcomes will not be as good. Another possibility is that they apply best practices, but only in some areas. I mean, you can have all the best operational manufacturing best practices, but if you don't have the management best practices, uh, unless you hired excellent people, you won't go very far. Or if you have the best management and product best practices, but you don't have the right sales best practices, then of course you, your business would be constrained and so on. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder about the role of purpose and understanding why. Um, I just, uh, just by coincidence this morning, I had breakfast uh, with an organization that um, uh, focuses on developing skills that people who have fallen on hard times can use to help get back in the workforce. So think about how would you help a homeless person actually find a job uh, but not a not a job, say, that was being given to them, but a job where they're actually able to go get a job because an employer says, great, you're ready for me to hire. I want to pay you. Um, and one of the things this organization learned is it wasn't enough to just give uh, the person the technical skills they needed to go do the job. That's obviously critical. Um, but they also learned that they they had to help that person understand the purpose behind their work. Why was it meaningful to do that work? And obviously there's having a paycheck and being able to pay your bills, but it went much deeper than that. It went down to serving the work itself and the value in doing a good job and, and in serving your fellow man well and that kind of thing. And, and I thought it was so interesting that it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not just a technical problem, right? It's a little bit of what you said about people follow incentives, but, but which incentives? It's not just the, the obvious ones in front of you. So, um, you know, I wonder if we can riff on that a little bit. I mean, it's, do, do you find that, uh, maybe one of the traps, if you, best practice traps, if you will, is it sort of people running around doing best practice, but they actually don't know why it, why they ought to be doing it, and, and uh, at some point that will fail. Yes, and let's let's talk about purpose. This is a great example. Most executives they know purpose is important, and they know that the right things to do is to give purpose to their people. A lot of executives thought they have not a good idea of how to give purpose to their people. And some, I really hate that story. I don't know if it's true or not. Uh, that anecdote of um, uh, President Kennedy visiting NASA, and then he sees the um, uh, janitor, and he asks the janitor, uh, what's your job? And the janitor replies, I help uh, uh, putting rockets in space or something like that. And I, re- I hate that, um, that anecdote because the lesson that a lot of people get is, oh, I should go around telling janitors that they're uh, shipping rockets to space. Or for example, if you're an automotive company, I should tell janitors that they're helping people get better cars. And uh, most Janitors will be, if you tell them that, they will be like, what? No. Or maybe like, yes, but that's that's not really motivating. The key instead is to show them the purpose, the direct purpose of the work that they're doing. So, for example, the janitor, he keeps uh, the office being a conducive uh, environment, for example. The way you give purpose to the janitor is not by showing him that the company's is shipping rockets to space is by showing him that the workers they appreciate that they have a, a cleaner, cleaner, clean, clean space. I give another similar example. If the janitor doesn't understand the purpose of a task that has been assigned to them, for example, 
why do I have to, to clean uh, under the desks even if no one is looking at them, for example? That's this is a question that you need to address to cover the point of purpose for the janitor. Maybe there is a good reason and you need to explain it to them, or maybe there is a bad reason, there is no good reason, and may then maybe you should not have this task assigned to them. But you should show purpose in this very concrete and direct way. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it, it brings, I mean, obviously a lot of that revolves around culture. And, uh, you know, the, I mean, the, the thing that popped in my head is why should you sweep behind the desk that nobody, you know, looks behind is, you know, the same, the same reason that Rolex um, finishes the internals of their watch to a very beautiful standard, even though in many of their watches, you can't see the inside. Uh, and, and it's this sort of, um, you know, quality seeps through. Uh, you mentioned earlier that, that um, some people's experience of products um, is very hard to quantify. Think about anything that this broad topic of patina, whether it's on leather or anything else, you know, it's, I, I, I love this, the office I work in more today than when I started working in it a year ago. And, and a lot of that's just the little scratches and dents and the few extra books and the whatever it's become part of, of how I operate. Um, I think certainly great relationships uh, get better with age. Um, and, uh, from an investing standpoint, one of the things I always ask myself when I'm learning about a business is, do I like this business more, the more I learn about it? And there are actually very few that that's true of very, very few, but then the flip side of that is the ones where that's true often just have wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things. Um, and so it, it makes me wonder, um, you know, what they could be businesses, they could be items, but but where in your life have you found these ideas of quality best embodied? You know, are there are there routines you have daily or items you have or or whatever where for you that's sort of how you've learned about quality because you've experienced it? Yeah, so for me, it was a lot my experience in my first job. So I worked for uh, DuPont uh, in uh, Frankfurt. And they really were obsessed about safety and they were doing it perfect, like excellently. And for me, a lot of the principles I've learned about quality was how DuPont was treating safety as if it were the, the topic of quality, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, for example, earlier you mentioned you had this experience where you walked uh, uh, in this office and they started telling you about uh, putting the hand on the handrail. It was exactly the same thing at DuPont. And uh, the amount of time that was dedicated to safety, even, for example, if we were working, spending a lot of time working in an office, and then you might think like, oh, what's the worst thing that can, uh, that, uh, that can happen in an office? But still, instead, you learn that a lot of things are happening. And then just by caring about safety, you suddenly so many other pieces fall into place because the moment that one person learns how to do quality really well in one topic, for example, safety, they learn how to do it well in uh, all the other topics. Mm. That's a great, that's a great point. It's, um, um, yeah, that may, it, it, it comes back to that idea of, of, in my view, kind of purpose of work and, and the notion of serving the work itself, which I think is, is wildly under-discussed um, in, in, in the business world. Well, um, I, I wonder if, um, if we can dive a little deeper into that and what you've just mentioned, um, John, around the... And, and I, I would ask you directly, Luca, what sort of patterns have you come across in your work as it relates to the principles and values that are conducive to this experience that we can have of quality? So this, this is good because you talked about experiences. And indeed, like if I didn't experience that, if I only learned about it in a book, maybe I would not have believed it. Like I would have believed like, yes, these are all nice things to have, but I would not have believed that they're really worth the time and um, or that they work so reliably and then instead they, instead they really do. So 
One experience I, I had, it's the one that always stuck to me, is uh, during my years in DuPont, there is this, uh, this uh, company like um, Trip. We send uh, uh, 17 managers were sent, uh, uh, we were sent to, this, um, to visit this plant in uh, Switzerland. So what happens is we spend the night in, uh, in a hotel and then uh, uh, the morning a bus comes and uh, picks us up from the hotel to go to the manufacturing site. My boss is the first one uh, getting into the bus. He notices that there are no seatbelts and he sends the, back, the bus home to the depot and he asked for another bus with the safety belt. And uh, that caused us to lose, uh, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes standing in the parking lot. Uh, you can imagine the cost, the cost of uh, 17 people, some of them like very senior managers, some of them were country leaders for the company. And you lose 45 minutes of that for what? For, for a safety belt, for a bus that's going on um, on major streets, and yet my boss did it, and that's the action that showed that safety wasn't just a principle to follow when it's easy, but it was a principle that's worth following even when it's costly, and that you are expected to follow even when it's costly. And that gesture sent a message that was so powerful and strong because it was costly. It was powerful. And everyone in that moment learned the lesson that, yes, my boss is really expecting me to put safety in high regard. And he's not just uh, um, saying things because he needs to check uh, something on the core value spreadsheet, corporate governance or whatever. But he really means it and I'm really expected to do it. And if I don't do it, my boss will, uh, will come to me and bad things will happen and so on. Mm. And the core thing is we experienced that. Before the experience, our boss was telling us that that was what we should do. But still, there is always a part of you that thinks like, is, does he really mean it? Does he really mean it when it costs a lot to do it? Does he really mean it when we are rushed, when we have a deadline? And with that experience, we learned that, yes, that's what he really meant. And so there is this focus on, on experiences on making people go through experiences that proves that words weren't just empty words. That's such a, that's such a great story. It's, um, it, yeah, it, it's, it's, so some of the, some of the things I look for when I'm looking for quality businesses are, that's a really good way to put it. When, when did it cost them to deliver a quality, you know, quality experience? Um, and, you know, you think, um, uh, you know, Amazon when they sort of pioneered two-day shipping. And, you know, anybody who sort of knew how to do the math on that realized they were taking a bath on it. There's no way they were doing it profitably, but they did it anyway. Or I think a lot of people have stories about returning an item to Costco and you know there's no way they're going to get their money back on it, but they take it anyway. Or or uh, it's, it's uh, is there anything else in that camp? I'm just curious now, and, and part of this is just looking for examples of quality businesses where where we can learn from. But, you know, what are, what are any other stories where, you know, a, a business um, showed through it being costly that they cared about quality above other items? Well, a big example is this practice uh, that has been made popular by Toyota, which is called the Andon Cord, which is the idea that in the manufacturing lines, you have a red rope hanging on the roof and everyone is expected to pull it when they spot a quality problem. And what happens is that when you pull the rope, production stops. And that's not just to prevent defective pieces to be sent, to be to kept being manufactured, but it's mostly because you stop production, it's a very co high cost, and that poses an extreme incentive to addressing the problem right now. And you can imagine in the alternative in which you spot a problem, the employee has to, uh, has to fill a small form and then the form gets collected and maybe they only get checked on Fridays and then they get prioritized and then maybe we take action next month and then maybe by next month or there is another priority and then we don't really take action and so on. So this is another idea, not, not just of 
taking an action, even though it's costly, so that we show the importance, but it's putting the cost as an incentive to work towards it. And um, and that's 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 another thing that uh, that uh, that some companies uh, uh, that some companies would do well is that they surface hidden costs. Uh, they find ways to make the important urgent, so that it gets taken care of. You know, we touched on this earlier. So we have the traditional paradigm, which has been discussed in incredible amounts of detail, which you could call quality in the traditional manufacturing domain. There's endless books, right, on on achieving incredible levels of quality in in these domains where quality really lends itself or the achievement of quality is really supported quite beautifully by measurement. Um, then we have this other domain, um, which we could call broader quality. We could call dynamic quality. Um, we, we, we're, we're looking at not so much an individual unit, but the system and the processes that produce the unit. Where clearly in that domain, what really matters are relationships. How do you find yourself talking about that and reaching people with um, some of the principles that we came up with today that that relate to a topic in, in, in dynamic quality where it's harder to put in words? It's impossible to measure in some ways. In fact, measuring things can be extremely counterproductive to the achievement of broader quality. It can be deeply misleading. Um, what language or or stories have you found to be particularly useful in this dynamic realm where we're actually we're looking at systems and relationships? One thing you mentioned is very important relationships. And uh, so before I explain how, to, like I answer your question on this, why relationships are important, because you can get everything else right. And if the relationships are bad, it won't work. I give an example. You can teach a manager all the best practices on how to give feedback and you train him. And now this manager is able to give the perfect piece of feedback. And then he goes back to his workers. And if he doesn't have a track record of having been helpful, doesn't matter how he says the piece of feedback, he will probably re receive a defensive reaction. Maybe the manager won't trust that uh, the feedback is useful and so on. And a lot of things in order to be able for you to do your job as a manager, you need to have a track record of having been competent and helpful and trustworthy and worthy, worthy listening to. So that's why uh, relationships are, are, are very important. So back, back to your questions. Relationships are definitely something that you should work on if you want to improve, uh, improve quality. Trying to measure them, in my opinion, is the wrong approach because you cannot really measure uh, measure relationships. I could probably create a, an assessment system which where you score some points, uh, you measure something. It would be better than nothing, but it would have a lot of blind spots. And it would probably not lead to the right improvement actions. Why are we measuring? We're measuring to improve. So sometimes you don't really need to measure, you just need to observe to improve. Sometimes you don't even need to observe, you can just improve. And I see this a lot of time when I do some, uh, when I work with some uh, people on management, for example. So one thing that happens, especially when you work with senior executives, they're extremely good at showing competence regardless of whether they have competence or regardless whether their relationships are actually good, they are probably good at speaking to people in a way that if you observe speaking to them, to someone, you will think that the relationship maybe is good, but even though it's good and so on. So don't measure. Instead, assume that the common problems are there and work on improving them because you can always improve 
If the thing is good, you will move it from eight to a 10. If the thing was bad, you will move it from a four to an eight. Um, but very often you can you, you can just you can just you can just focus uh, focus on improving. And that doesn't mean, of course, you don't measure because if you only improved without measuring, you would have a lot of blind spots. But it's more about using measurements to raise flags, detect anomalies. But then on the side of that, you still do the improvement work regardless of what you're measuring. Yeah, there's been this thread that struck me about the importance of observation, um, of getting out into the field. Into this, into the dynamic environment, um, and and paying attention to to how things are done, and paying attention on the level of the relations between the different components in the system, and it, and it really, I guess, it begs the question: is is and, and maybe it's a broader invitation towards humility in how well we can actually understand systems without having that an intimate relationship you know observationally with with um with actors in that system with processes in that system um and and it's a very difficult it, it's a real problem for investors um to 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 overcome uh, as so often they're well they're, by definition they're looking from the outside in um and they're dealing with situations where management teams are very good at presenting a certain version of the world, um, and 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 more often than not, how things really work is is not how things are described. Um, and on, on this, I just want to to give a short story. I've recently uh, been commissioned by um, like I recently worked on a project where uh, basically our I, I um, for a retail company I went on the shops. To observe what's going on and then give a picture to to senior management of what's actually going on and uh, some of, of course possibility for improvement and things like this. And the thing which is interesting is that most people in that management there's either never been in a store or at the very least mm-hmm. there's never been in a store which is not in their headquarters city. Mm. Isn't that wild? And and it's wild. That's, that's crazy. And and it's and it's wild, but but it happens a lot of times. And I mean, this time it's a bit like 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 almost uh, almost extreme, or or maybe they've been sometimes like in a store, but not really like observing what's like. Like I wouldn't count like if they just pass it without having a conversation with the people. But definitely, and you would be amazed to know how many uh, people have never been on the manufacturing line or at the very least in, in manufacturing lines which are not uh, uh, the ones in where they have the office. And I don't mean like doing the tour, like the representative tour, where, where you go with the site manager and the site manager makes you go around and tells you like, oh, here is where we're doing this, here's where we're doing that. This is our employee of the month, something like that. I mean, like really like observing what the workers are doing, understanding what the workers are doing. What's that worker's job? What's that machine's job? What's the bottleneck to this process? So many executives, they don't do. And my question is, how can you manage the company without that? And the answer is, you can. there are things that you can manage without knowing how things are done, how people work, but there are also a lot of things that you cannot manage. And you have an, a very big blind spot if you if you don't work there. And the reason why I'm saying that is like, I'm very glad to do the work that I've been commissioned to. I'm paid, I do it well, I bring results. But part of my part of my mind is before you commission me, you you like you cannot just let me do the job. Like you you should also do do the same. That, that reminds me of um, a couple of things. That point's really well made. Um, I, a friend of mine, um, this is a while back, he was the, he became the CEO of an, uh, an alcohol distribution company here in the US. And his first week on the job, 
he rode around with truck drivers who were delivering beer all over the place. And I asked him how that was. And he said, you would be shocked at how hard it is to do that, how heavy the kegs are, how you have to deliver a lot at once, how, and, and it, it, it made me think actually, it, it says something that that's such an uncommon experience, right? Like you'd actually sort of wish the world was the other way around. And, and the, and I know there are companies that promote from within. And part of that is, you know, I think, uh, Doug McMillan at um, Walmart and, you know, you have to work up through the ranks so that you've done all the jobs. And I think there's a certain logic to that, but, um, uh, you also see this a lot, I think, in in sales processes. So because of, you know, I have a background in, in enterprise uh, software, um, wh- whenever I'm being pitched some company or product or whatever, uh, I, I usually will try to find the CEO or the salesperson and say, you show me the product. I don't want your demo guy. I want like you, you show me the product. And And more often than not, they don't know how to use the software that they're you know, they're in charge of effectively. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I, I think that's maybe there's, there's certainly a principle there that's something about being very close to the work and only being able to have a very high quality product if you are actually close to the work and have done the work and understand it deeply, not just superficially. Um, it's a very good, very good point. Um, I think I'm, I'm going to move us to a, a close here. These have been wonderful stories. I've got a, a closing question, which we've kind of been dancing around. Um, here anyway. But before we do that, um, um, two questions about you. So the first is, where can listeners connect with you? I know you publish, I know you uh, run your own business. So where can people connect with you and learn more? Yeah, so my website is luca-dellanna with double L and double N.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Dellanna Luca. And uh, my books are available on Amazon and on many other book retailers. Wonderful. And and what, and I mean this in a broad sense, but um, one of the things we try to do here is ask people, what kind of help are they looking for? You know, if, if there's a listener who who wants to connect with you, obviously they can read your books and so on, but are there, you know, are there certain things you're looking for that could be really anything, um, data, ideas, connections, clients, you know, what, what would be, if somebody wanted to help you, what would be the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so two things. One is, uh, so my job basically is uh, I help companies increasing revenue and profitability to the level of uh, people management. And uh, if you know anyone uh we would have opportunities for working on that. Um, I would be glad to have a chat. And then uh, the other thing is uh, I have had experiences in a wide variety of um, of, of industries. And uh, the one industries where, where I never had any experience and I would love to like getting a chat to understand some some problems and so on is uh, restaurant management or, or food chain management. Um, yeah, and if you work on that and you want to have just a chat uh, in which maybe I can get some information on you on some problems and maybe you can ask me questions on uh, on the top on my topic, which is people management and we exchange on that, that would be great. Fantastic. Um, so our our closing question for our our guests here is. Um, and I know you've already given us a number of wonderful stories in this area, but if you had to pick one, uh, what's the most memorable expression of quality that you've ever encountered? That could be an item, that could be an experience, anything, but the, the most memorable expression of quality that you've ever encountered. I will just go back still to my, uh, to my experience with my, uh, with my former company and the focus on, on quality. And I give an example, driving. So in our job, we were expected to drive, but not just people who are doing sales or consulting on the field, but even people in the office, the, the, the logic was, are you commuting? Yes, so you're driving for the job. And uh, they would put us through safety training. And then they would uh, have each other, like uh, our colleagues, each other audit the other person driving once every six months. And I remember that uh, during my first audit, the I the thing that I failed was uh, when I parked, 
I, uh, and I went uh, backwards for parking. I didn't lower my window to hear in case there was any child, child, child uh, screaming at the back of the car. And I was like, what? Is that actually a thing? But yeah, and the person that was auditing, auditing me there, uh, very straight face, yes, that's actually a thing. There are, there are actually a lot of incidents like this. And uh, we, 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 we need to cover all things. And the seriousness with which those things were done, even though, like now I don't know German laws, but I'm quite sure that there was no law mandating the company to do that. It's just another example of one of how you can devote efforts to something that then has long-term returns. Two, how devoting efforts to that teaches people how important the long term is. And three, for example, the, the thing that we had to audit each other would also mean that we will learn a lot of skills about auditing. And then maybe you can apply it to a lot of other things. So again, this idea that once you learn how to do one thing well, you learn how to do a lot of other things well. Then it really pays off to teach how to do one thing well. And, uh, and that's a very good way to, to get to improve quality uh, in a company. Yeah, that's very, I'll certainly remember that. I don't think I've ever lowered my window when reversing. So <laughs> I'll definitely remember that. It's a great idea. I just never, ever thought of it. Uh, well, Luca, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for uh, spending time with us, for sharing your wisdom with us. Um, I've enjoyed it. And uh, uh, so thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. It was really great. Thank you for listening. And for more resources, please visit our website, theartofquality.co. If you think of anyone that could be a good fit for this format, please reach out via the website.